ya. Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randles. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hello and welcome again to the podcast for the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm Dan Godby, the medical editor. As always, I'll solicit input and feedback from all of you, and particularly all you providers out in the field. As always, we've got several summaries of articles that are in this quarter's edition. Thanks again, and always, from us at the JSOM. Josh, welcome back. Good to see you again, my friend. Good to see you too, Alex. How's your month been? Oh, you know, winding up to the holidays, it's uh, always a bit of a challenge. And happy non-denominational holiday greeting to you, my friend. And to you. So uh, I'd like to throw out to everyone, we always like to remember all of our deployed service members during the holidays. And although it's a far cry from actually being deployed, I know probably for you and I, we'll both be working in the hospital over the holidays. Uh, We're low man on the totem pole. You know, we'll probably be pulling the night shift on New Year's Eve and night shift on Christmas Eve or whatever other holiday you've got out there. And so just remember our colleagues that are covering the 24-7 shifts don't always get to spend the holidays with their family as well. Especially, yeah, especially all those paramedics who are out at some random gas stop. Oh, at what a great six, reminder. Yeah, 6 p.m. that one night waiting for that AFib call. That used to be us. Yeah, well, that one time. Uh, The first article we'll be discussing is The Good, the Bad, and the Future of Drones in Tactical and Operational Medicine by Dr. Keegan Bradley. With the decreased cost and wide use of unmanned drones in civilian and military settings, the question of drone use is now gaining traction in medical settings. Dr. Bradley wanted to review the current use, future possibilities, and risks of drone in the civilian, operational, and tactical medicine. He discusses several possible uses of drones, telemedicine, situational awareness, especially in the realm of SAR, as well as patient and equipment transport. What I think is more important is this identification of risks of UAV use to include the lack of regulation, which is tantamount to the lack of legal protection, of their use, startup and maintenance cost, the risk of making a patient by having a drone slam into them, or many patients by having them slam into another aircraft, drone hacking and public perception of government intrusion, and the fact that drones are used by other actors as offensive weapons. Frankly, I found the discussion of risk the most useful part of this article. If I were tasked with developing a program for drone use in a military unit for medical purposes, the need has already been defined by the commander, and other needs can be improvised from experience, but knowing what risks I would need to reduce is much more important. Because typically, when the commander comes in and gives you a task, they know what they want. So a commander is going to come to me and they're going to say, hey, I want to use these drones for transporting blood. So I need you to plan out this system. It's easy for me to get the need, but the risks are important. I think that's what this article does well is gives good sense of risks, including that that drone hacking. There's a lot of information warfare out going on in the in the wide world today. And, and that needs to be utmost on our minds. What did you think, Alex? Yes... I mean, really, the question that we should be asking ourselves from every article that we read and review is, why do I care? And what I took away from this article is, 
he did a fair amount of evaluation of the existing lay of the land and then a whole lot of postulation about the future that didn't really feel very well backed up by science and was more supposition. And I don't know that I care really. Also, as someone who is involved in austere and remote search and rescue here in the US, I didn't necessarily agree with many of the assertions that he put down there about SAR applicability. And I think most of the folks who attended SAMSA last year with the excellent drone presentation probably already had more information than this manuscript gave. And so I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to take out of this besides the poetic waxings of a single author. That's all I got. Yeah, when I was reading this article, I actually did a PubMed search in the last year, and there's been 62 articles on drones and drone usage in the past year. So especially one that was in a journal, Care and Trauma, which also sort of reviewed uses and things of that nature. So I think your point is well taken. I don't know what this adds to the literature. Next up is... Shared Blood Expeditionary Resuscitative Surgical Team, Erst 5 use of local whole blood to improve resuscitation of host nation partner forces by Bowman, Asherbrock, Cohe, Fisher, Jeanette, Hughes, Copeland, and Muir. And you know, Josh, I'm actually not sure what type of article this is. It seems like maybe a no, uh, a no kidding there I was, but they kind of frame it in terms of a case study. But uh, we can just kind of do a brief overview. So the Erst 5 team got on station, and in part of their planning phase, they determined that they needed to maintain 20 units of PRBCs and 20 units of FFP to be mission-ready to support U.S. forces that were engaged in their area of operations. They then made the determination that any resources above and beyond that 20 and 20 would be considered surplus and would be available to administer to their partner forces when needed for damage control, resuscitation, and further surgery from the Erst. And what they said is they didn't feel like that was an appropriate way to support their partner forces. And so they ended up engaging with their co-located civil affairs team who came up with a number of different viable solutions for them. And Ultimately, what they did is reached out to not only the local government, but also just the local hospital, and were able to then incorporate some of the local hospital's whole blood to have on hand for use for damage control resuscitation. They then go ahead and give a case study from before they implemented this program, as well as two brief vignettes from after they implemented this program. And their conclusion is that our collaboration resulted in improvement of the care of partner force soldiers and increased interoperability among the special operations unit with the local partner forces. Critically, by obtaining host nations stored whole blood for partner forces patients, the Earth was able to maintain an appropriate level of blood product in reserve for our primary mission. So while I really like them reaching out through their civil affairs to come up with collaborative solutions for their partner forces, I don't really get much out of this manuscript. And more importantly, I think if you listen to some of the chatter, it sounds like this isn't even a practice anymore. And specifically, and I know you know this, Josh, because we've talked about it before, I just get so annoyed when they say Erst team. So I applaud these guys uh, using their civil affairs. I used to be a CA guy. They're great. But uh, I just don't know that I get much from this. How about you, Josh? 
I, you know, I'm more stuck on the ATM machine now, so thanks for that, but... <laughs> Fantastic, and moving on. And for our inaugural guest host, we've got the pleasure of having Ricky Ditzel help us today. You may know him well from the, what I think is outstanding Raboa lab he did last year at SOMSA, as well as a great lecture on calcium for resuscitation. And uh, most importantly, I think for Dr. Gurney, has now coined the Ditzel Diamond of Death that he presented on the Joint Trauma Service, which, Ricky, I've decided to call the D3. And I think, <laughs> really, if we want to make it a standard part of military medicine, it needs to be an acronym embedded within another acronym, um, which I'm thinking might be a topic we'll speak on here in a few minutes as well. But, Ricky, thanks so much for your help today. What are you here to talk with us about? Uh, thanks for the introduction, Alex. I really appreciate it. So today I'm here to talk about getting smart on shock treatment, an evidence-based mnemonic acronym for the initial management of hemorrhage and trauma. This paper was intended to discuss a mnemonic to use while treating a casualty with massive hemorrhage uh, as a way to reduce clinical errors by having a system two treating massive hemorrhage kind of helped the provider go down uh, an easier decision-making route. So this paper does not include what type of paper it is in the title, the abstract, or the discussions. So I would assume that they were going for an editorial because there's evidence within the paper, but it is opinion-based. So I'm going to call this an editorial on shock treatment. Like I said, the goal of the paper is instill a new cognitive mnemonic for hemorrhage control called SMART. And SMART for the listeners stands for start the clock and stop the bleeding, maintain perfusion, administer antifibrinolytics, retain heat, titrate blood products and calcium, and think of alternate causes of shock. So what I think this paper did very well was it provided strong evidence to support the current clinical practice guidelines by the Joint Trauma System and the Committee on Combat Casualty Care. They introduced a lot of evidence to support why we need to pay attention to massive hemorrhage and systems we already have in place to handle that problem. So if you're looking for a paper that has evidence on that, this would be a good one. And then another great thing they did in their introduction was they highlighted the use of bandwidth as a resource and they really centered their paper around trying to reduce bandwidth in an austere or high stress environment to reduce clinical error. Some issues here with this paper is that they didn't provide sufficient evidence to change clinical practice for their mnemonic. So while they supported evidence for current clinical practice guidelines and modalities, they didn't have any specific research to support that their mnemonic would actually reduce clinical error. It's more of an opinion that because this mnemonic is evidence-based that it would reduce clinical error. And then my other issue here was that there was no method section to explain how they went about conducting their research and what made them choose the articles that they chose to support their editorial. And I think that would have helped this out a little bit if somebody who read this wanted to look deeper into our system one versus system two thinking. I think that would have been very beneficial. So for my recommendations is uh, maybe they can conduct a study with smart mnemonic versus uh, another mnemonic and do a time trial of effectiveness to hemorrhage control or hemorrhagic shock patient management and see if there is actually a reduction in clinical error and come back 
with a second paper of original research and that way they can actually prove that their their mnemonic works so I, I struggle with their title I think it is a mnemonic that has evidence to support that hemorrhage is the leading cause of death and that's kind of my quick review of this paper um, I'd probably hand it back off to you Alex and see what you think yeah nice job thanks so much for the insight I think is you being one of the outstanding army flight medics really has some boots on the ground perspective that sometimes we lack thanks so much for your insight Ricky any last thoughts appreciate you guys having me and uh, if any of the readers want to check out this paper that's it's not a bad idea awesome thanks Ricky Thank you. Thanks so much, brother. Alex, it's time for a deep dive. As Ken Milne would say from Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, it's time to talk a little nerdy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Alex, I guess it's time to talk a little nerdy. (laughs) So this is the pharmacokinetics of tranexamic acid via intravenous intraosseous and intramuscular routes in a porcine hemorrhagic shock model by Dr. Eric DeSouci and a whole bunch of other outstanding folks from Travis Air Force Base, uh, Wayne State University in Dayton, Ohio, and their colleagues over at the UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, California. For these authors, their hypothesis was if there was a significant difference in IV versus IO versus IM TXA administration from a pharmacokinetic perspective. And they wanted to explore this because their theory was that the medic on the X or in a austere environment may not necessarily have the time, equipment, or resources available to them to obtain an IV access initially. Uh, And so their population was a sample of 15 Yorkshire pigs, which importantly were all 67 kilos. Really not that important. I just thought it was pretty impressive that it was pretty darn close to a 70 kilo patient. Uh, Their intervention was the IM route and IO route of tranexamic acid administration. Their comparator was a normal dose of IV TXA. And their outcome was looking at both peak serum concentration and half-life of TXA via all three of those routes. Going into the article in a little bit more detail, they based all of their dosing on the standard TC3 guidelines of one gram in 100 milliliters given over 10 minutes for the IV and IO routes, and the IM was given as a deposition. They did an excellent job methodologically, I thought, in uh, preparing their specimens, and you can read through the details in the manuscript. But essentially, they obtained access for ongoing monitoring for a number of different parameters and also standardization. And then after the samples were prepared, they performed the pre-intervention measurements followed by their intervention, which was a 35% calculated blood volume loss via femoral artery catheter. And then they collected their number of time points with their interventions, followed by at the 300 minute mark, return of blood to their specimens, and then ongoing monitoring until these specimens were used for other purposes. And then the data was analyzed. What was fun to find from their data was that the serum levels for the IM were much lower than the IV and IO, which were statistically equivalent. 
but the half-lives were exactly the same across all three branches. In conclusion, they didn't feel like this porcine model was ready to change any practices, but they did feel like it was probably going to set them up for some future studies to see if this may actually be a viable model for some of our austere practices and some of our lower resourced providers. What do you take out of it, Josh? So I agree with you. The methods section is brilliant. It's it's very informative, and I feel like I could reproduce this particular study based on their methods. I understand that we have a interview with the lead author coming up, so I won't I won't wax too poetic on this particular article. I think we should go through the eleven point quality assessment. Alex, what do you think? Send it. All right, Alex. Was it a clearly focused question? Yes. Did the author use the appropriate approach for the question? I think so. Was the cohort recruited in an appropriate way? Yes. And I think they covered it quite well in their methods about how they even obtained their specimens and how they assigned them to the the three different arms. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? I think so. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? I hesitate in any study to say that all confounding factors have been identified. So I don't know that I could give them that blanket answer, But besides the, was it lower blood pressure, I think, in the IV group, um, which was a confounder, but didn't appear to have any statistically significant interventions. I think they did. Yeah. I think the important question or the important word there is important. Hmm. So no, they they didn't get all the confounders, but did they get the important ones? Yeah, I think they did. Yeah. They did a good job. Was the following of subjects complete enough? You know, that we're not sure about. And you actually brought up that really good point, which is how long did they follow those specimens out until they were uh, sampled and got their necropsy? So I don't know that we can answer that at this point. How precise are the results and the estimate of risk? I think the results speak for themselves. And again, I would highly encourage their readers to look through the manuscript. It's very well done and a great example of how research should be conducted. As far as risk in this porcine model where the specimens were recovered, I don't really know that risk is applicable. I don't think it is yet. I think this was more of a... So in medications, it's safety and efficacy. So I think part of this was safety. The other part was, is it bioavailable? But does it actually work? This study doesn't do it yet, and it wasn't designed to. Mm-hmm. It was just designed that, to show that it was getting the system. Can the results be applied to your patient population? If you are systematically bleeding out Yorkshire porcine models in a lab, then this is absolutely applicable to your patient population. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? I don't know if there's much evidence out there that's been well collected about IO or IM use of TXA, so there might not be much to compare it to. Well, Josh, you know, we've actually got the privilege of the very first author for this manuscript as well, and this is Major Eric DeSouci right here at Brook Army Medical Center with us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. And uh, I am curious, maybe you can give us a little background. The manuscript says that you're at Travis, but um, you're a couple time zones away from there. What are you doing here at BAMSI? So I've just finished my general surgery training at Travis Air Force Base and UC Davis, and now I'm out in uh, San Antonio doing my 
Trauma Critical Care Fellowship. Holy smokes. All right. Well, we are very excited to have you here and hoping you might be able to answer a few questions that we had after reviewing your manuscript. Absolutely. So our first question is, why did you administer the calcium gluconate when you returned the shed blood? Was there some concern about the magnesium citrate in the blood collection bag? Uh, that's exactly right. So the calcium was administered to basically counteract the citrate that was in the blood bags that we took the shed blood into. And similar to practice in humans, you have to basically give the patient back calcium to counteract the citrate that's in there. Uh, really, the shed blood uh, that was returned had no bearing on the concentrations of TXA that were evaluated, and the calcium was given well after the, uh, the final serum concentration was taken. This allowed us to recover the animals, um, whereas otherwise we may have had to euthanize the, uh, the animals if they had severe levels of hypocalcemia, and allowed us to use them for other uh, experiments and uh, educational activities. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just curious what the thought process, but that explains it well. And what conclusions can you draw about all three arms having similar half-lives but different serum concentrations? So really the, the similar half-lives indicate that the drug is being excreted at roughly the same rate. Uh, more interesting to me is that the area under the curve or the total exposure of the animal to that drug is roughly similar across all routes. What, the real question to me, though, is what is the importance of that initial spike in TXA concentrations early on? Um, there's a marked difference between the peak concentration of IV and IO compared to IM, and we really haven't fleshed out the answer to whether or not that's an important spike. Do we really need to hit a peak concentration, or is, it, uh, is there a baseline min minimum inhibitory concentration that we need to hit at a baseline, and that's adequate? And I am itching to ask you at the end of this about what the follow-on studies will be that may end up giving some hints about that. Well, our next question is, based on your research, are you making any changes to your trauma practice, i.e., should medics consider that different routes of TXA administration are ready for prime time? Because this study is purely looking at the pharmacokinetics of TXA via these routes, we really can't say much about the pharmacodynamics and the actual efficacy of TXA in a human model. We really can only make parallels between what has been reported as the minimum inhibitory concentration TXA to prevent fibrinolysis in vitro. That being said, there's certainly been anecdotal uh, stories about IMTXA being used in the field. I do not know at what dosing or circumstances those cases use TXA. But if I found myself in a situation without IV access or an IO access, I would consider IM route as it seems to have few downsides in that scenario. The key going forward is going to be identifying the appropriate dosing and concentration as 10 milliliters is a whopping IM injection. Yeah, good point. And so as a follow-on question in comparing your porcine model to our human patients, uh, our next question was, were you able to equate the level of shock induced in your model versus what a human would be experiencing? Would you be able to give an example of a patient presentation in a human? For this study, we were really trying to shoot for uh, class 3 shock, which in an average size human would be about 1.5 to 2 liters of blood loss, or roughly 30 to 40 percent of their total blood volume. We hit right around 38 percent blood volume removed in these animals. While we couldn't use some of the classic metrics of respiratory rate, mental status, and an anesthetized and ventilated swine, we did look at medium, uh, mean arterial blood pressure and found that these animals were profoundly hypotensive with their baseline maps of 60 to 80 going down to about 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury. 
Additionally, we saw a drop in their peripheral perfusion by about 50%, which makes sense with the vasoconstriction and shunting of blood to the animal's core in extreme hypotension. To correlate this to a human example, this is a patient that has lost about two liters of blood who is cool, clammy, and hypotensive with MAPS less than 60. You know, the one thing that we did not see in your methods, and so our question is, are you able to say how long the model survived after the experiment? What was the median lifespan? I'd sure like to see a 30-day mortality, perhaps? So in, in this particular case, again, we were looking at the pharmacokinetics. So the primary reason, aside from being able to reuse the animal models for other purposes, uh, the primary thing we were looking at in the post-experimental phase was whether or not there were any injection site uh, abnormalities or changes, specifically looking for necrosis, anything that would be evidence that the TXA was causing tissue damage. Um, for that, we, we set a baseline that we were going to keep the animals alive for at least one week before used for other purposes. Um, and I, if I had to um, hazard a guess, I would basically say that they all uh, were survived at least one to three weeks post-experimentation, uh, and that really just had to do with what the lab had going on in other uh, realms. Hmm. Well, that's super helpful. Well, uh, Dr. DeSusi, thanks so much for your time. And I think we're all really interested in your research as this directly applies to the care that the medic will be performing on the battlefield. Can you tell us what's the next step in this, sorry, research arm to get it to prime time? So the, the next step has already been underway. And uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Maggie Spruce, has taken this one step further and gone into a model where in addition to ongoing uh, hemorrhage, we're looking at the efficacy of TXA uh, by actually using an in vitro assay where they're adding TPA and evaluating to see, you know, when do we actually get uh, cessation of fibrinolysis. Um, and that work is uh, being published in shock. From there, we really have to see when can we take this on to the next step in humans. But the problem is we don't yet know what the ideal concentration of the TXA will be in an IM dose. And in fact, the, there's still relatively uh, high levels of discordance between what people think the appropriate dosing is in general, uh, with uh, some advocating for one gram uh, followed by an infusion, with others indicating that maybe higher doses of TXA um, is the way to go. So really, until we identify what the ideal dosing is uh, in general in the ideal situation of being able to have IV access, it's going to be more or less guesswork trying to figure out whether or not um, we can get to an appropriate uh, IM concentration and dosing. Well, Dr. DeSusi, thank you so much for not only this outstanding manuscript, thanks again for taking the time here this afternoon to uh, chat a bit more with us about your manuscript, and welcome to San Antonio. Thank you so much, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Alex, I think we've finished with our review. Now, you and I have been working together for about a year and a half now. I, I, think, I think it's okay now for me to ask you what you want for Christmas. All I want for Christmas, Santa, is registration to SAMHSA 2020. <laughs> so for those few folks who haven't heard yet, SAMHSA is moving in 2020. We are moving to Raleigh, North Carolina in May 11 through 15. So please do put in your leave request now for May 11 through 15 so you can come join us in Raleigh, North Carolina this year.
Also remember that JSOM is for the soft medic. Please do help us create a better product. If you have any insights, case reports, ideas for content, anything of the sort, we want to hear from you because JSOM is here for you. And you're welcome to reach out by any of the social media platforms. Or also you can get a hold of us if you want to throw some spears at podcast at jsomonline.org. Thanks so much for all you do. As Mel Herbert says, what you do matters, especially matters for all of our guys downrange. Thanks so much, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. But I think we should go through the 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 questions. The, um, I think we should go through the quality assessment. Yeah.